Hi, you are listening to the VJ Himong podcast. Although virtual this year, the Ash 2020 meeting provided some great updates in the field of AML. Today, we are joined by four leading clinicians who discuss and debate the data presented at ASH 2020, including updates on using phenetoclax-based regimens, immunotherapy, bispecific antibodies, FLIT3 inhibitors, and MANIN inhibitors. Hello, my name is Navar Davar. I'm a faculty in the Department of Leukemia at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Eunice Wang from the Roswell Park Cancer Center. Dr. David Salman from Moffitt Cancer Center, and Dr. Amir Fati from MJ, MGH, Mass General Hospital. And uh, today we're gonna be talking about uh, updates in acute myeloid leukemia from the recent ASH 2020 meeting. Uh, there was a lot of uh, new data, a lot of updates, uh, subset analyses, as well as uh, new exciting drugs. So uh, with that, uh, I think I will just proceed into the discussion. So. As we have seen in the past, venetoclax uh, continues to be a major drug in acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, new updates uh, at this year's ASH on that. Uh, maybe we can start with uh, uh, some of those. So, uh, Amir, what were uh, some of the uh, venetoclax updates that you found uh, interesting, either novel combos or new therapeutic approaches? So, uh, it, you know, it looks like, uh, uh, so venetoclax was presented from multiple different angles. Uh, pretty much it seems like it's a tradition now these days to talk about venetoclax because it's, a, it's a so effective in combination. I think you and I uh, had previously talked um, about the combination of uh, CPX351 and uh, venetoclax um, presented by your uh, colleague, Dr. Kadia. Um, I thought uh, the data was uh, intriguing. Um, very high response rates, um, but you know, as the presenters acknowledged, uh, when you sort of combine uh, Ven with a highly marrow suppressive uh, regimen, it can be challenging. So there was lots of dose reductions, lots of changes uh, to the schedule uh, of venetoclax that was presented. Ultimately, I think they found a, um, a schedule and duration that seemed to work for venetoclax and uh, uh, CPX351. Uh, of shorter duration, um, and uh, seems that it's feasible. Now, whether this is a, a regimen that ultimately will incorporate itself into conventional care, I don't know. I think time will tell. We'll, we will have to see. There are other regimens out there. Um, there is also the combination of FLAG-IDA and uh, venetoclax that, uh, again, has been uh, predominantly studied by your group, both in the upfront and the relapse refractory setting. Uh, that to me seems very promising, uh, very high response rates, um, uh, predominantly in the newly diagnosed setting, but also in the relapse refractory setting. I, I you know, it seems that um, the sort of the it was a bit easier to sort of figure out, uh, or perhaps it was a bit more proactive in terms of figuring out the dosing of an edoplax with that regimen, or it may just be that flag uh, is less marrow suppressive than um, uh, CPX351 is. But I was also impressed by that data. Um, finally, uh, you know, or in addition to that, uh, there was a, a few updates regarding VLEA and, and perhaps others are going to talk about that, but I, I was particularly uh, overall impressed uh, by, by the data regarding dose reduction uh, of venetoclax um, uh, sooner uh, than previously recommended uh, and um, disseminated so that patients can tolerate this uh, regimen from cycle two going forward if they ultimately achieve uh, response and remission. So those yeah. are my takeaways. 
Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, very broad talk, topic, obviously. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, the flag eye of an Edoclax uh, that we've been doing is, uh, I think, maturing well. We had to adjust the doses, as you say, decrease the cytarabine from 2 to 1.5, decrease the IDA from 8 to 6, and the venetoclax is 14 days. But in that regimen, at least in the last year, uh, in early salvage as well as in frontline, it seems very uh, safe, but also high remission rates. So I think that'll be one definitely uh, to look out for. In fact, in salvage 1 and 2, where the median survival now is between 14 and 18 months with about 40 patients, uh, if that continues, uh, definitely something uh, you know to uh, take forward. But speaking about the subsets, I think that's a great topic. So maybe I'll ask uh, David to talk about uh, some of the data with Azaven and TP53 uh, AML. He may have seen uh, some of that data. And what is your feeling, David, since you're doing other TP53 drugs? Is Azaven something you would still consider or you think it's out of, out of the question? What are your thoughts? Yeah, sure, so I think, you know, really, from the early Azaven, you know, experiences, you know, we knew that P53 was a challenge from, you know, Donardo's earlier blood publication, you know, median overall survival was 7.2 months despite a higher response rate. And that's really very similar to what uh, single agent, hypomethylating agent has been. And I think that's been, you know, you know now seen in, in multiple studies. So I think the Viali you know, trial, we know that the hazard ratio, you know, crosses one, although we don't really have the specific median OS in the P53 subset from that. Uh, you know, cohort, we know that, you know, again, response rates are higher, but likely from lack of dur durability and quality of response, um, you know, these patients are, are still doing poor. I think what was nicely um, shown, you know, by, by your group too, I think even with extended schedule of, of decidabine um, up to 10 days and venetoclax, no matter how you slice it, actually, if anything, now things are getting worse. Like median overall survival across groups was now between four and five months, which may be even a little bit shorter. And it may have to deal with the the degree of myelosuppression that these patients have with sort of lack of response. So I, th I think together, I mean, response rates are higher. It's not that off study, I wouldn't consider it, but I really think that we can clearly change the standard of care. And so instead of necessarily joining HMA venetoclax, I think some of the studies are looking to be against HMA venetoclax. So, you know, we presented data on megrolimab, of course, as you know, with uh, azacitidine, and and actually, you know, you know, have uh, dosed uh, 47 patients, which is large, or as large as any p53 cohort, and you know, our response rates are about in three fourths of patients, with nearly half having complete remissions. But I think, again, responses are not the key, and although follow up is still somewhat short, our median follow up was five months. You know, our median OS with that combination is now out to out to five months. I mean, out to um, our median overall survival is nearly 13 months. And I think that could actually extend farther with many patients still on treatment. So, um, you know, that's really supporting a phase three to be launched of azomegrolimab versus azomenetoclax. But I think there are other strategies, some agents not necessarily discussed as much at ASH, such as epinetapop. You know, we're looking at that. And then whether or not triplet combinations, it, you know, can, you know, based on preclinical translational studies, can there be synergy with venetoclax? I think that's a separate question. But I think H HMA VEN, to your question, is, is not a great standard, and we can look to improve that even with other doublets, but open to what others think about this uh, molecular subset as well. I like how you said Epranapop topped. I still cannot say that. <laughs> I'm going to stick with APR for that. Uh, and uh, and Eunice, uh, you've you've also done uh, treat a lot of people with uh, venetoclax. So there was also data in uh, FLIT3 mutated AML. And the way the data was presented, uh, I guess Marina was uh, here, we could have spoken to her about that. She presented the data was that yes, the response rates are high and Azaven is a good regimen to use. However, 
you know, we've discussed this in other forums that uh, would you really do a event in a newly diagnosed FLT3 ITD AML? And I want to get your thoughts on, on that data and what your approaches are for a newly diagnosed FLT3. So I think as we move into venetoclaxase, acitidine, based on the VLEA being our new standard of care, the temptation is for many people, including our group, is to just use it as uh, agnostic of mutations uh, in o any older unfit individual coming through the door. So if you are 75 or older or you look unfit, uh, why not just give you uh, venetoclaxase acitidine? Why even bother waiting for the mutational profile to come back in three to five or seven days? Uh, and I think that that may be uh, true for people in the community. There certainly is validity, certainly. But whereas we do more subset analysis, as, as David pointed out, um, there are some groups that don't do as well. So I think mutational profiling still may be indicated. Now, there's a lot of debate even amongst ourselves. We can have uh, this conversation about whether a venetoclaxase society represents a reasonable approach for patients with flip 3 mutant disease, or where should we reach into our toolbox and get a flip 3 inhibitor? So Marina Konopleva's poster demonstrated that patients with FLT3 TKD do very, very well with venetoclaxazocytidine, and that should probably be an option, uh, valid uh, use for them. However, FLT3 ITD, both in the VLEA and in the retrospective data from MD Anderson, suggests that there is a high response rate, but the overall survival is not quite there. So it, uh, some people are very convinced you get an adequate response rate, you get several months of uh, response, you get 10, 12, 14 months. But when you look at the hazard ratios, they're not as clear cut. And with the availability of things like gilteritinib uh, and other potent second generation flipthrinib is moving into the clinic, uh, I think there's a lot of question. We also know, again, based on data done in Dr. Ponclavo's lab, that a major mechanism of resistance to venetoclax-based therapy is FLIP3. So FLIP3 is either selected or uh, uh, grows out or is a clone that contributes to refractory disease. And if you have refractory relapse disease to Venesa, your response is a, your overall survival is a matter of months. So I presented some data at this recent meeting looking at a phase three trial of gilteritinib plus azacitidine in older unfit newly diagnosed AML patients. Uh, that data is um, encouraging about two thirds of patients out of a very small group of 15 patients treated on a safety cohort with gilteritinib 80 to 120 milligrams demonstrated a response and, and uh, at least one patient, that clinical response lasted over 36 months. Median overall survival out of those 10 of 15 patients achieving a response on gilteritinib azacitidine was over 10 months, which is reasonable and within the range that we would obtain with uh, Venaza. So the results of the larger randomized uh, phase two or phase three cohort involving uh, almost 200 patients is still pending. We've uh, that that trial is about over half accrued, so over 150 patients enrolled. So we're going to have to see. But uh, the question remains, as you said, should we do FLT3 inhibitor plus ASA? Should we do um, uh, venetoclax plus ASA? Or your favorite, uh, uh, <laughs> your proposal is always to think about triplets. We don't have the triplet data yet, but we do have the doublet data of Ven and gilteritinib in the relapse refractory setting. That seems to be highly effective with overall response rate of 80 80% 80 or more uh, in patients that have failed prior Ben Aza uh, or who have failed prior GILT. So I thought that data um, that you presented was actually very intriguing. And I know a lot of us are reaching maybe off label for the combination of, uh, of GILT 
and Venn, although having to keep in mind what uh, Amir said, any Venn combination is associated with myelosuppression. And I think that was an issue uh, that you had, and maybe you could yeah. talk to us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think with Venn, it's uh, too much of a good thing situation, right, where we always like to use it, and we've used it quite a bit. And, and I think the problem is that in most regimens, we're seeing that uh, not forget about 28 days. I think that's that ship has already sailed. But even 21 days of Venn in these novel combinations is too much. And when the responses are this high, uh, really, do we need that much? And I think it's always this fear of LIT3 is an aggressive disease or relapse AML is an aggressive disease. So nobody really wants to start with seven or 14 days of Venn. But I think more and more as we're doing these triplets or we're doing combos with Black Ida or with CPX or with Giltritinib, that theme is is consistently emerging that probably 14 days or less of Venn is sufficient. And if you look at the preclinical data from 10, 12 years ago from Marina Konopleva, Tony Litai, others, I mean, that really is what was suggested because it's, uh, you know, stimulation of apoptosis. You're not trying to have a continuous receptor saturation or occupation like an antibody or like a FLIT3 inhibitor. You just need to get above that apoptotic threshold and get apoptosis. So uh, I think we're getting there slowly. Of course, the label has the issue of uh, saying 28 days. And so, you know, to move away from that, you really have to show robust data. But as you said, with the Venn guilt, uh, response rate overall, very, very high, 85%. And also in people who had prior TKI, which is not really all patients, you know, in our centers, everybody has a prior TKI with induction, still maintaining it around exactly the same. But the true CRCRIH rate is only about 30%. Uh, which is about similar to GIRT alone, and then you have this 40-50% marrow remission. And the good thing is we have things like PCR for FLIT3, and we could see that the PCR clearance was double of what we get with GIRT alone. And if you want to take a patient to transplant, well, that's good enough. But if you're thinking about using these doublets and triplets as standalone, as you said, maybe moving them up front, which is, of course, going to happen, I think a lot of effort and time needs to be spent in optimization you know, of these regimens. How much when can we give? Do we do an early marrow, you know, document ablation, clearance of the disease, stop the vent, use growth factors early on. And, and a lot of these studies, both doublets and triplets, uh, will be uh, looking at that. But I think in the end of the day, these are regimens that are here to stay. They will move forward. Hopefully, we can optimize them before people in the community kind of, because you and me and Amir and David, we know, but I think in the community, my worry is somebody gives 120 of guilt continuous and then 400 continuous and guaranteed everybody will be absolute neutropenic and myelosuppressed. So I think that's kind of, you know, uh, going to be the onus on us to get this data optimized, presented, published and highlighted uh, soon. But let's move maybe to another uh, emerging topic in AML, uh, immunotherapy. So, you know, five, six years ago, uh, early signs and interest, uh, but nothing really sticking and showing great activity. Uh, we were doing a lot of work with PD-1, CTLA-4. I know others here have been also working on different immune antibodies. But now I think we're starting to see a little bit more clinical translation of these uh, data sets. So I think David briefly mentioned uh, megrolumab. I think that would be a great uh, drug uh, to discuss. And David presented the data on that. So David, can you just highlight some of the key findings in both MDS-AML and where you see megrolumab going? And how do you think it will be uh, use as a doublet, as a triplet, uh, once let's hope it's approved. Yeah, so I mean, I think I, I mentioned briefly the, the P53 specific data. You know, we had a small subset that we, you know, presented at ASH in, in wild type patients was 16 patients, but, but really very similar response rates across molecular subsets. And actually the median follow-up on that small cohort is a little bit more mature as it was over a year. 
and median OS in a, an elderly unfit patient population is 18 months. You know, I think kind of similar to, to what we've seen with some of the earlier HMA, you know, venetoclax-based studies. I think small subsets, but very clearly, you know, I'm also excited about moving towards, you know, triplet, um, you know, therapy and patients, of course, if toxicity is not uh, of concern. And I think what's nice, at least with megrolimab is we do get on-target anemia, which can be a major issue in cycle one. And we need to keep these patients at a higher uh, transfusion goal during that month for, you know, for safety. But we don't really see a worsening neutropenia or thrombocytopenia toxicity and thus may combine quite nicely, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a triplet-based regimen, given we have sort of a new standard of care with HMA Ben. So I know you have a investigator-initiated study on this topic, but I think there's significant interest um, for, for pursuing this more broadly. I think maybe, you know, this... The focus of this call, of course, is, is is AML, but I think we need to be very cognizant of you know the developments of MDS because they you know um, they they really uh, impact each other you know significantly. Of course, Ven and, and MDS has has a lot of ongoing studies. So, the you know trial currently has breakthrough designation for high risk MDS and really um, you know fully accruing a quite large you know expansion cohort. Um, and again, response rates have also appeared to be very durable. You know, we presented, you know, updates most recently at, at ASCO and EHA. So I think as that agent may be further developed and approved, uh, may have, you know, other you know, implications, uh, including off-label. And I think at the same time, although we don't have too long to discuss it, I mean, some of the other agents, you know, Pevanidistat had another updated presentation, at least had an event-free survival benefit in um, uh, in high-risk MDS, and there are triplet trials with PEVO in HMA venetoclax ongoing in AML. You know, similarly, sabatolumab, which is a TIM3 inhibitor targeting leukemic stem cells, as well as uh, augmenting adaptive immunity. You know, some uh, some early data uh, presented by uh, Andy Bruner um, with, you know, higher response rates. I think really a key question is durability and, and really longer follow-up is needed given from an overall response rate and true CR rates a little bit lower. And, and, I, and I think... I think that's probably a good summary, but I think one question I would have for the group is just thinking of how we really move these agents forward and what trial and what endpoints are critical. Because um, clearly there may be a lot of off-label usage as, as uh, you know, Eunice was mentioning earlier and, and how to safely guide that. So uh, open to discussion, but something I think would be nice to comment on. Yeah, I think that's a great one, Eunice. What are your, I mean, this is going to be, a it is a major challenge, right? Even, even at the big centers like ours, like MD Anderson and, uh, others where we used to be able to do all the trials, we cannot anymore. There are just so many drugs, there are so many trials, and there are so many combos. So are we still going to have these large randomized phase threes going on for years, or are we moving more to solid tumor myeloma approaches where you get signals, PFS, OS, and we proceed? So Eunice, what are your thoughts uh, with venetoclax, migrolumab, maybe uh, other FLT3? How, how can we optimize these trial designs? So I think that, you know, we are in the era of targeted therapy. So the, the old gold standard where we were going to wait 10 or 15 years, like the ratified trial for readouts of overall survival are, we, we know now, probably faulty. We also know that in contrast to our solid tumor patients, that when patients relapse, we have other options. And for example, we transplant them. So that's always a huge confounder when you look at uh, the data. I think that the fact that we've had a few agents, and I'd specifically highlight the IDH1, IDH2 inhibitors, which were uh, beautifully presented by Ari Milnick and Courtney DiNardo, their development over the last few years. Really, I, I think that we are now approving agents based on molecular precision targeting, uh, and uh, I think event-free or progression-free survival. We've also moved towards 
away from CR to CRC or CRI uh, or CRH or whatever the CR criteria is as, as a response given the myelosuppression. And as you mentioned in your trial, using molecular endpoints, looking at variant allele and frequency, looking at MRD, there was uh, a trial demonstrating that we have a correlation potentially between MRD positivity and overall outcome in patients treated with the oral azacitinine inhibitor. Um, so I do think that we're moving towards more flexible and uh, 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 endpoints which are more relevant. Uh, that being said, I do think that we need to be careful. So I do uh, want to caution one agent, the oral azacitidine, which uh, we were very excited to have as our first maintenance strategy for the treatment of AML patients having endured induction and or consolidation intensive chemo, but can't move on to a transplant. Uh, that particular agent, the questions in the community are, can I substitute now orally society in CC486 in place of um, parental IV or sub-Q HMA? I've had questions, can I just use venatoclax and CC486 in the upfront setting for my elderly patients so that I don't have to combine those agents? And I think there needs to be some caution uh, with that. Uh, approach. I don't think uh, we, it must be made clear that CC486 is not the same equivalent. It's a 14-day daily oral pill taken out of every 28 days in patients that have normal counts or count recovery after intensive chemo. It is not to be used as a replacement. It's not a one-to-one. -one. There are no studies that have been done. Uh, and and as, as you said, I think the myelosuppression with these pills uh, can be significant. So when you look at uh, the other major question I get from the community is, oh my God, this is so much more myelosuppressive than giving AZA alone. So I think that we are moving into a targeted era. I do think we're gonna be more nimble. We're gonna use progression-free survival and new CR and MRG measurements, but I think there's a lot that needs to be done. And I think caution should be uh, exercised. And if patients are not able to travel to larger centers like us, it is always able to do a virtual visit now or to speak with those individuals on the phone to get some guidance before the patients end up in the emergency room with a platelet count of three. Yeah, no, I, I think this is very important. I mean, you know, at the same time, we're kind of battling two fronts where we're hoping for early efficacy and uh, molecular and MRD clearances approval. But at the same time, I almost feel that, and we had this discussion another call a few days ago, that these are gonna actually make it harder for people in the community to treat AML. And, and I think there's almost a, ironical reverse feeling that, oh, you know, I can give oral CC486 venetoclax giltritinib and the patient would be great. Actually, I would be scared to give that combination, you know, myself, okay. even at a large, you know, cancer center. And I think, I think in fact, what's going to happen or should happen is like with myeloma is they start having these bispecific antibodies, CAR Ts. In fact, their referrals have increased back into the large myeloma centers. And I think for AML, as we try to develop these doublets, triplets, we hopefully will get more referrals and not too many people trying it at home and having 50, 60% early mortality, which is unfortunately, as you said, we get this question all the time. Why can't I just do CC486 VAN, CC486 GILT? And I say, absolutely, there's no safety data. Even I wouldn't do this off a trial setting. Uh, so yeah, there are gonna be competing risks of let's move this forward. We have nine, 10, 11 drugs now uh, versus is this really safe? Uh, you know, just cause it's oral doesn't mean it's uh, it's safe. Uh, so Amir, what are your, there was a lot of data also on bispecifics. I'll kind of move the topic here because I think this is another challenging area that for the last four years, many people have been working on. Um, yeah, some activity, but no clear path forward. 
Uh, there was data on flotuzumab as well as Xmab uh, presented. Uh, what's your take? I know you're participating on these studies. Do you think it has a path? Where would you use it? Can this be ever taken outside of academic centers into community? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, so. The data on flotuzumab has sort of been slowly been emerging the last um, you know few years. Uh, and you yourself have been involved with the immunogen uh, by specific agent. Um, they're active. They're active agents. Um, we we know that and they look at, you know, we target different uh, proteins, CD33, CD123. Um, it seems that uh, there is a, uh, a gradual acknowledgement that there is a patient population that uh, may benefit the most. And those are the uh, refractory early relapsing uh, AML patients that uh, for whom there might be a niche um, of uh, uh, you know effective uh, drug development strategy uh, for these agents. They, you know the data that's been recently published and presented shows that they have a, a fairly decent uh, composite remission rate, uh, roughly around thirty something percent, uh, with a fairly decent uh, median overall survival for patients that are primary refractory or early relapse who historically have dismal um, outcomes. So it may be that, that uh, such agents, particularly flotituzumab, has a role um, uh, in that subpopulation of patients. But as far as um, treatment in the community, I, 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 I stand a bit skeptical about that um, because I, I worry about the side effects, the marrow suppression, the CRS, um, you know, the potential need for escalation of uh, clinical care, um, critical care. So I, I, think, uh, I, think it's, I think it's difficult to say that this is a community drug. And I, and I think that my general advice would be if you're considering this for patients, first of all, they're only available in clinical trials now. But if they ever become available more broadly, I would recommend their use just as with CAR T cells um, in an academic setting that knows how to best manage these patients. But in general, I agree <clears throat> with my colleagues. There's so many, um, and you and I uh, wrote a, a review paper, <laughs> which was quite extensive and long. There's so many of these drugs now, antibody drug conjugates, naked antibodies, uh, bispecific darts, um, and I, very few of them may be accepting uh, megrolimab, um, have uh, a real uh, established uh, role yet uh, in MDS and AML, and um, and I don't see a very clear one on the on the horizon. So, um, but nevertheless, I, I see some excitement. I think I like CD70 as a target. CD47 has established itself as a really impressive target. There are some exciting CAR T stuff coming out. David knows this very well, but uh, I think we still are a bit away from that. Yeah, I think just along the, you know, the lines of the, the flotituzumab, you know, we're, we call this primary refractory, you know, patient population, but is it, is it picking out a molecular subset? So, you know, I think from Rabondi's presentation as well, you know, the low blast AML, PD-1 low T cell subsets, you know, if you look at, you know, our, you know, recent blood publication, as well as the blood advances flotituzumab, you know, this may be picking out for P53 that we know are enriched in primary refractory you know, acute leukemia. And so they may have this 
infiltrated uh, you know picture that maybe can be uh, improved with um, with therapy such as uh, flotituzumab. So I think that that's really important. Our you know clinical versus our you know versus the molecular subsets that we're looking into. I guess my only you know pessimistic look at the data is you know in in patients the durability of responses are extremely short lived if you don't go to transplant. Um, you know, I think there was a question to Ravandi from Eli Etsy saying, what, what is the definition of durability, which, uh, which was an interesting question. Um, but I think a lot of this is in weeks to, to several months. And, and I think understanding that is, is, is critical. Now, bridge to transplant is its own important, um, you know, candidate of trials, but there are other ages. So I think we just have to, you know, look at this further. It's a lot of time in the hospital potential toxicity to think about durability. Of course, these are patient groups that have nothing. So I think we need to be, uh, I think that we can be optimistic and I'm open to other thoughts, but that's been my concern has been the durability of some some of these agents, which for novel IO, we I would hope would be better than it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, for the challenges we have to go through with 14 to 18 days hospitalization, you know, getting a 35% or so response without, durability is going to be tough. Uh, but I, I also think that we're not, and this is partly because of the regulatory landscape and what was allowed and not allowed, we're not using them where we should use them, right? We have 10 years now of Blina experience where we know the best activity is in that low burden, MRD, early salvage, fit T cell population. And, and we really never have been able to try any of those five bites in that setting. Now, finally, I think some of them are moving there. And I think that will be the real uh, proof uh, whether it works or not. I mean, if we do see in low burden MRD Great. disease, high clearance rates, better safety, which you would expect because there's less disease antigen and uh, maintain profile, absolutely. If we don't, then, well, maybe it's just not the way it'll work for AML. And ALL, of course, is much more homogeneous, much better differentiated antigens, uh, you know, hard to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a interesting area emerging, no clear winner, as Amir said at this time uh, among those. Magrolumab and Pusatuzumab, I think, are quite exciting based on the data. Also important to note their front line, and, and this is also different, you know, where we can have a clearer signal of activity compared to these single agents in, in the salvage setting. Um, so I think we have a few more minutes. Uh, let me discuss uh, FLIT3, and uh, Eunice has, has done a lot, lot of work on FLIT3. There were some data looking at maybe different sequential approaches. So people who have had prior induction with TKIs and then get FLIT3. I think there were three different orals looking at that approach. Um, what is your take on that, uh, Eunice? Is, is that somewhere where you think that you're still seeing reasonable activity with second generation? Would you consider doing single agent or just really more combos? And uh, what? how should we use this for further drug development? So I think that um, I'll talk about the, uh, the retrospective data looking at sequential use. So as we all suspected and we all have had anecdotal experience with, um, you know, the more heavily pretreated the patient, whether it be chemotherapy or a FLT3 inhibitor, the worse they, or they do, right, because of mechanisms of resistance. And there was a lot of data presented at this uh, uh, year, as, as you said, about three separate oral abstracts addressing that. So in general, the, the uh, take-home points are, uh, yes, if the, the, the first time you use a flip free inhibitor, it works the best. Uh, the, the subsequent second and third times you use it, it works less well. Um, it clearly appears to be that uh, as in conjunction with that, that combining the free inhibitors with other chemotherapy or other drugs uh, leads to higher response rates, particularly in that second or third exposure that you're getting to. 
And uh, in general, the, the data supports the use of the newer generation quasartinib, Dritinib specifically over earlier multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitors such as serapinib. Now, there was data presented by Sasha Pearl uh, regarding the results of the Admiral trial and the Crisilla study, specifically looking at patients with relapse and refractory CLIT3 mutant disease and how they did uh, with gilteritinib monotherapy after they had received prior TKIs. And I think towards the end of the ADMOL study, uh, mitostorin was approved, and so increasing numbers of patients have been enrolled or been treated with gilteritinib who had received prior mitostorin. That did not represent in the ADMOL study the majority of patients that were enrolled on that trial. So this was sort of a, an attempt to address that question, like if my patient got mitostorin up front, uh, could they respond to gilteritinib? And in general, the data, uh, my impression, was that uh, there was a difference. I mean, the survival curves looked, though it was not statistically different um, when they were treated with gilteritinib uh, with prior TKI. There was clearly a separation, uh, although statistically when they combined both the data with chrysalis, which is the phase 1B, and the admiral trial, there was no difference in prior TKI usage. There was a small differential, 45% versus 51% in terms of response rates, and a not statistically significant due to small numbers difference. So I think that based on that, the preference would be using uh, more potent inhibitors up front and using combination therapies. And the, the abstract that highlights the feasibility of that is, is one that's been very anticipated, presented by Keith Pratt's and colleagues. Uh, the results of the phase one safety feasibility of gilteritinib added to 7 plus 3 as an alternative or uh, to uh, mitostorin 7 plus 3. So gilteritinib may or may not work well, whether we want to debate that or not in somebody that had prior mitostorin, why not move the gilteritinib in place of mitostorin? So the trial presented by Pratt's and colleagues did, re did recognize that, looked at a couple different 7 plus 3 backbones, Ida Rubicin as well as Donna Rubicin, as you recall in the ratified trial, it was Donna Rubicin only, and it was 60 milligrams per meter squared, not 90. So overall, the data suggested that it was feasible, 120 milligrams given for two weeks, plus the inten intensive chemotherapy and consolidation was acceptable. They did have some decrease in the duration, again, due to the myelosuppression, as you pointed out. Uh, they couldn't give 28 days of gilteritinib. However, I was, again, it may also be because of myelosuppression. Again, the true CR rate was only about 30 40%, and, and you would have wanted all 80% of the patients to have a a full CR with full count recovery. So we're going to have to wait. Uh, there's two phase three trials, one done in Europe, one phase two uh, ECOG study here in the United States looking at randomizing patients to gilteritinib versus mitostorin. But there still is that question, as you've highlighted, about myelosuppression, CR versus CRC. Um, and again, I thought that phase one also brought up the question of, can you give Ida Rubicin? Because it looked like they sort of gave up on that and moved back to Donna Rubicin as their, um, as their baseline regimen. So I think, that, um, I think that it wasn't as positive as we would have wanted to see, like a 95% CR rate and incredible tox uh, tolerability. Not quite, but still very enthusiastic. I know a lot of us are, look at that again, in an off-label, but again, to be careful about the myelosuppression. So more to come, but I think FLT3 inhibitors, second-generation combinations, use them up front. Just yeah, if I, I can, I know ahead, I'm I'm time, yeah, please. but I just yeah. wanted to say one, one quick thing. Uh, so uh, the response assessments, CR, CRI, as we all know, they were developed in an era where there were 
really no targeted therapies. And what they ultimately meant that if somebody did not recover their accounts, that the likelihood of persistent leukemia as the accounting factor was very high. Nowadays, when you give guilt and VIN and all these drugs that have potential for myelosuppression, you do get a CRI. But what is that CRI? What's the nature of that CRI? And I think that's, that's an important consideration because you know, having a totally MRD negative CRI is very different than having a CRI after seven and three for complex karyotype AML or MDS AML. You know, you worry about the latter. You also worry about the former, but for a different reason, for myelosuppression. So I, do, I don't worry as much about the lack of response from these uh, combination studies because I think the real responses and I bet you the uh, I don't you know I, I bet you that the responses are, are are quite impressive, but I but I am concerned about combining a lot of different things together as, as Eunice was saying. Yeah, I, I, marrow suppression. No, I I think you're absolutely, and I think you know there's data, right? It's not just uh, without data. There's data from Roland Walters very few years ago, now recently from Farad, and Nick Short and Roland, the very large largest meta-analysis for MRD ever done, and. If you basically sum it up, the only thing that matters is MRD, right? If you have a CRMRD positive or a CRH MRD positive or a CRI MRD positive, uh, it doesn't matter. If you have a CRI MRD negative, it actually does matter. Those people actually do really well. So I think it, we're not there. The FDA isn't there yet, but I think we're moving very quickly there. And I think FLIP3 may kind of be the beacon that pushes it because, as you know, one of the precog studies, which is randomized, is going to use FLIP3PCR at the end of two cycles as the primary endpoint. And again, it's not, it may or may not be a registration study, but I think if that study shows that and then shows that that was clearly associated survival, I think at least for FLIP3 for all these triplets, et cetera, and there's already discussions, that will be the endpoint. Can you achieve molecular clearance with a 60-day mortality that is safe? And that really is all that matters. You know, let's not worry about this CRHCRI, but we're not there. The FDA is not there yet, uh, but I think we're heading that way, just like in CLL and in ALL and others where MRD will be the key. Um, but I think uh, we're out of time here. Uh, thank you all very much. Uh, we could keep on discussing. You know, one of the uh, topics we didn't bring, but I do want to mention and give Eunice a chance to highlight, which I think is actually one of the critical uh, early but important drugs is a menin inhibitor. Uh, this is a very important pathway. We've had FLIT3-IDH, we've had TP53-directed drugs, and now we have a fourth potential very active target. So, Eunice, you want to give us a brief update on this and where you think see this going? So, yeah, so on behalf of my colleagues, including Dr. Fati, who's here on this call, I presented some, um, some early data suggesting the that a new novel class of agents, which are oral menin inhibitors, may have a role in future therapy of AML, particularly for those mutational subsets for right now that we don't have a targeted therapeutic. So the KO539 is an oral menin inhibitor and inhibits the interaction of menin with the um, MLL rearranged epigenome complex, which is a key component of the pathogenesis of MLL rearranged AMLs, as well as NPM mutant acute leukemias. Uh, early data with this once daily oral inhibitors suggest that it's very well tolerated. It doses up to 400 milligrams. Um, it doesn't interact with uh, looking CYP3A4 inhibitors, does not cause Q2C prolongation, and there were no 
drug uh, discontinuations due to treatment-related adverse events. Interestingly enough, uh, in the first cohort, which was agnostic of mutation, there were two CRs out of the first eight patients and another uh, four patients out of the first eight that demonstrated some stabilization or clearing of blasts or morphologic leukemia free uh, disease. And those patients had both MLL, uh, KMT2A rearrangement, as well as did not have uh, MPM1 or KMT2A rearrangement, suggesting that this could potentially be useful across different mutational subsets. Now, I want to caution, it is only a handful of patients, but there was early data presented with a similar agent, uh, Syndex, uh, earlier this year, uh, also demonstrating in their very early studies that there were some clinical responses. So this is a uh, an area that we're going to be looking at pretty closely. The um, combinations, I think, are going to be key, but also uh, waiting until we get a maximum tolerated dose and expanding this out to get a real sense of that efficacy. But I feel that even if the efficacy isn't as good as we've seen already, uh, this might be a great partner uh, to add on uh, to other other therapies. As we know, uh, as Dr. David was mentioning, the P53 targeted APR346 drug, which name I cannot pronounce, like you guys, uh, was really seen in combination with azacitidine. And magrilamab, uh, the CD47 antibody, similarly had low efficacy as single agent, but really has come to the forefront as a potential new standard of care in combination with azacitidine. So I think more to come on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say it, um, at Anderson as well, we're involved with both Sydnex Cora. We're very, very excited. We've seen some of these responses, dramatic seven, six salvage kind of patients who had nothing else. And, you know, seeing this very reminiscent of the IDH days, you know, when we started having those and even before that giltritinib, quisartinib days. So, I agree. I think this is real, but it will probably be enhanced even more as we move it up front uh, with the best combos. And MLL is an adverse risk uh, feature, so even more important. And of course, ALL, I think uh, this could be a major player as well. Uh, so very exciting uh, data emerging from there. So with that, I think we'll uh, close it out. Thank you all so much for uh, joining and uh, discussing this and uh, uh, have a great day. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with the latest Hemonk news, including cutting-edge content straight from Ash 2020, visit vjhemonk.com and follow us on Twitter at vjhemonk to join in the conversation.